Good morning, everyone. If we haven't met before, my name's Tom. I'm the pastor in training here at Trinity Church. And we're going to open up God's Word together. We're going to, we're going to explore it together. So shall we ask for his help? Father God, we thank you so much for the privilege of hearing you speak to us. Please give us ears to hear what you have to say and eyes to see something of your glory. Encourage us, challenge us, remind us of truths we already know and teach us something new. Transform us and change us, we pray. Amen. I have a question for us. Does God understand what life is like? I'm not asking, does God know what life is like? As Christians we say that God is all-knowing. But does he actually understand what it's like? It's one thing if God is in the stands of the stadium, looking down on us, as it were. It's quite another if he understands what it's like to play on the pitch. It's one thing to be a spectator. It's another thing to be a player. Does God actually understand what it's like for us on the pitch of life? Does he actually get it? Does he get the joy? Does he get the pain? Does he actually understand what life is like for us? I don't know what your week has been like. I know for many of us it's a week of new beginnings, getting into routines. We had that break for the funeral on Monday. But largely, September is about setting a new rhythm for the new year. Lots of us make little resolutions. And this week, it's been some to put those into practice, hasn't it? Getting back into the routine, getting back into the rhythm, taking up new tenancies, maybe starting new jobs, doing all sorts of things. And for lots of us, it may be very exciting. A really, really exciting time to get on with the year and something new. But there are also, at some point... We're going to come across what I call a kitchen floor moment. You know, sometimes you you come home from, I don't know, work or something, and you just need to hit the kitchen floor. It's been awful. You know, sometimes we have days, don't we, where it's just so bad, you just want to curl up into a tiny, tiny ball. And it just hurts. I have that experience quite a lot. You just get home and it just hurts so much. It's horrible, isn't it? You feel alone, you feel isolated, maybe people are in the room. And you perhaps can't quite curl up and wail like you want to. We're British, most of us. <laughs> but you know that feeling, don't you? And you come in through the door and it just hurts. And there can be all sorts of reasons why things hurt. It's what I call life pain. Life, wonderful in many ways as it is, sometimes just hurts. Doesn't it? Someone you were born, someone screamed. When you went to school, there were arguments. You fell over, you got hurt, you cried. Someone picked you up and gave you a plaster and told you to kiss it better. You had many opportunities in life. Some of them went really well. Some of them didn't. There were closed doors, missed opportunities. 
Sometimes there are illnesses, chronic illnesses, illnesses that just last forever and ever and seem to never end. Constant trips to doctors. No cure, no solution in sight. There are losses too. People we grieve, people we mourn. They leave a gap that just doesn't seem to be filled. Life often hurts. Life often hurts. And also our world hurts, doesn't it? I had to delete my news app two years ago and I've still not re-downloaded it because every day there is just news, isn't there? There are wars going on. One in Europe now this year. There are famines. There are plagues. There are social pressures. All sorts of injustices that just go on day after day after day. In 2022, sexism is a thing. Racism is a thing. In the UK, classism is a real thing. Where you were born or what school you go to matters for some reason in our culture. And don't get me wrong, there are many wonderful things about our culture. Many things that from a Christian standpoint we can celebrate. We can say yes to because they're just so good. But there are still things that cause us hurt. And there are some things that we can kind of say yes to. But actually it's, it's kind of like, yeah, sort of, I kind of get where you're coming from. I'm not quite on the same page, but I think we can just about run together for a bit. Sort of response from a Christian standpoint. But at some point, in any culture, in our culture as well, there comes a point where you have to say, as a faithful Christian, firmly but gently, no. But often that hurts, doesn't it? That often hurts. Because that means we, when we say that, we risk being disconnected from someone who's asking us to do this. Or disconnected from the people who go that way. These might be people we care about. These might be mums, these might be dads, these might be brothers, sisters, close friends, housemates. That feeling of disconnect hurts, doesn't it? When they're doing one thing, when your friends are doing one thing and you're doing something different. Because you're a Christian. This is what I call Christian pain. And the temptation, isn't it? And whenever we experience that times when we have to say no, is to not say no, is to say yes to everything. Yes to absolutely everything because that makes life so much easier for us, doesn't it? Just to go with the flow. And that's the temptation faced by the Hebrews in chapter 2. The first century life was not idyllic in many ways. Being ancient Rome wasn't fun. Especially if you were a gladiator or a slave. It was difficult. It often hurt. It was hard to be a Christian. There were no ancient church buildings. No rituals. No public Christian funerals to think about. No public scripture readings. Little money. Those in authority. Those in charge. Largely indifferent. Christianity seemed like a weird sect. A weird cult. that didn't make any sense to them. The wider culture struggled to understand these weirdos, these Christians. For the, church, for the churches around in the ancient first century, 
there was a constant threat, a low-level threat they constantly lived with, ranging from slander and lies right the way to death. The temptation was to say yes to everything in their culture, to not say no. These are people who understand what Christian pain feels like. And last week, we looked at the start of chapter 2, where there is this big warning to Christians. Don't drift away. Don't drift away. If you have your Bible open, have a look. Chapter 2, it'll be over in verse 1. We must pay close, careful attention to what we've heard, so that we do not drift away. Be careful you don't go with the flow. Stay with the anchor. Don't move is the instruction. But of course, that hurts sometimes. They risk being disconnected. They risk not fitting in. And that hurts. We, like these Hebrews, feel that pain. Some of that pain. So what does God say to us in a world that often hurts? What does he have to say to us? Well, in Hebrews 2, the rest of Hebrews 2, we see some answers. What does God say to us? Does he get the pains we experience? Does he understand what life is like on the pitch? Have a look down. Verses 5 to 8. Well, yeah, verses 5 to 8. We do not yet see glory. In verse 5, we see that there is a world to come. A coming kingdom, a coming people, a coming land, a coming place where we will be, where there will be joy and there will be glory and honour. A place where pain is history, a place where injustice, where hurt, where suffering is an old story relegated simply to a legend. This glorious place that is being built, that's being constructed even now, but is not yet finished. On the way to church this morning, I went past um, Uni Parks, and just opposite University Parks now, they're building a life and mind centre. This amazing, grandiose building in the university. If you're new to Oxford, you'll just see cranes all the time, as the university is building new and newer things all the time. And this building looks, and the plans on the side of the like barriers they put up, looks impressive. It's going to be in a glorious building to look at. I'll never be allowed inside, but it looks, it'll be great to look from the outside. A glorious building. And it's a bit like that for us. We know there is a glorious blueprint that's coming together. And unlike Oxford University buildings, all of us will be allowed inside. <laughs> we'll get to be there. We'll have access. We can see this majestic, glorious building coming to fruition. This glorious kingdom that we can be part of. There is a coming kingdom. It's a bright future. But who's going to be ruling it? We're told, at the start of verse 5, it's not to angels. For these Christians, the temptation for them was to go back to Judaism, where the angels are very significant in Jewish thought. Judaism in those days, was a very respectable religion. 
It had a lot of social cachet to it. It was part of the establishment. You could, you could be Jewish and be respected in Roman society. It was hard at points, but you could get on and people said, okay, I know those people. They're okay. You could be Jewish. But this world to come, this coming kingdom, is not being given to angels. Who's it being given to? Have a look. Verses 6, 7. He's quoting the Psalms, the Old Testament. What is mankind that you are mindful of them? The son of man that you care for them? You have made them a little lower than the angels. And you crowned them with glory and honour. This coming kingdom is not being given to some holy huddle of celestial beings. It's being given to humans. To human beings. To people like you and me. There is a coming future for those who believe. A coming future for Christians. That we can be part of. There is a glorious future awaiting, the writer of the Hebrews is telling us. The world to come is going to be led by us, by people. It's, it staggers me. It staggered me when I saw that in the text this week. I've read it many times, but it just knocked me. People are going to be in charge. But then, of course, there's a problem. Isn't there? We don't see a lot of glory and honour, do we? We're still on a building site. There's still stuff going on. There's still dust and grime and dirt around the place. It's not there yet. We don't see glory yet. But the psalm is not in the future tense, is it? So what on earth is going on? What is this piece of ancient Jewish poetry telling us? Well, the writer to the Hebrews tells us, we do not see everything subject to them, to humankind, at the end of verse 8. But what do we see if we don't see glory yet? We see Jesus. We see Jesus. And I'm going to make no, I'm not going to apologise for this. We're going to be talking about Jesus a lot for the rest of this sermon. And I hope you'll come to see just how amazing he really is afresh. We see Jesus, verse 9, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honour because he suffered death. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Can you see what the writer's doing here in, he, in the verse 9? He's talking about the gospel, the Christian gospel. Jesus, who was made lower than the angels, who descended to earth, came down from the stands onto the pitch, as it were, and lived among us. Now crowned with glory and honour, gone up into the stands and lifted the trophy. Many of you have seen the old grainy pictures of Bobby Moore lifting the World Cup, that glorious moment, 1966, when England won. It's been many years of hurt since, hasn't it? And given the other night's performance, I'm not entirely confident we'll have, we'll have those come to an end soon. That's the story of the gospel. Jesus descended to the pitch and then rise, rose up, crowned with glory and honour. Lots of you will have heard this before. If you've been to church for any length of time, you will have heard this story. The God who comes down and comes back up. 
And little fishes, they're learning about that right now. We start teaching it at a really, really young age, and rightly so. But so what? So what? Jesus went down to the pitch, come back up. What does it mean? What does it actually mean for us? Well, we get a little hint of it, don't we, at the end of verse 9. So that he might taste death for everyone. There's a hint of what's to come. And now, I think Jesus in these verses is presented a bit like a diamond. There are different facets. So we're going to look at four different facets, facets as we look at Jesus. Four different ones. And we're just going to work through the text and draw out some of them. We do see Jesus now, firstly, as pioneer. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Pioneer, literally trailblazer, front runner. Any big tech company wants to tell you they're a pioneer. Some of them really are pioneers. Some of them really can't, can't. They're not. They're just not pioneers. A couple of years ago, we were told that 3D TV and glasses would be a thing as we consume media. It hasn't happened. The pioneers there had to hang their heads in shame when online streaming came along. There are pioneers all the time. We always like the pioneer. We like the entrepreneur. We like the person who starts something. This is that picture here, the pioneer. And the pioneer of salvation, the leader, the one who cuts the path through for salvation, for rescue, this coming kingdom, is made perfect through what he suffered. This is talking about Jesus. So we can't talk about moral perfection here, because we know that Jesus is sinless. When we talk about perfect here, we're talking about the complete package, fully qualified for the role. I couldn't start my A-levels until I had my 5A star to C at GCSE. And they've, re, they've changed it now, isn't it? It's like 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7. There's, there's, a, there's an entry bar to make. For Jesus to become the pioneer, he had to suffer. For him to be the complete package, he had to go through that experience. I know I'm using lots of football illustrations, but at the moment in Man City, Erling Brut Haaland is considered the complete package as a centre forward. He is the complete package. But to do that, he had to go, he started off in Norway, went to Germany, went to Austria, then to Germany, then to Man City in the Premier League to the big stage where everyone was watching him. The BBC absolutely waxed lyrical about him. This centre forward who is the complete package in his early 20s. Man City probably will win the league, so the pundits say. I don't know. I don't actually follow that much football. But <laughs> that's the story. That's the story that's being told. Jesus is the complete package because of what he suffered. He is qualified for his kingship because he went down. His qualification is that he suffered. He's a pioneer. That means in our life, any struggle we go through, any temptation we face, he's faced in some form. He's not asking us to do anything that we haven't ourselves He's not asking us to do anything that he himself, sorry, has not done. True, Jesus wasn't tempted to commit credit card fraud. It was the first century. What's a credit card? But he was tempted to lie, to cheat and to steal, wasn't he? 
He was a human being. The temptation was there. The surrounding culture did it. Often there were tax collectors everywhere, stealing money left, right and centre. But he didn't. He didn't. Jesus does not call us to do anything that he himself has not done. He is our pioneer. We see Jesus now as our brother. Have a look, verses 11 to 13. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are made of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. Did you see that? In all of our pain, in all of our complexity, in all of our mess that we make of our lives, give me a week, I will make a complete mess of it. Those close to me will testify to that. In all of my mess, Jesus looks at me and says, that's my brother. He looks at you and says, that's, that's my sister. In all of your mess, in all of your complexity, those of us who are older brothers or sisters will probably get something of this, the staggeringness of this. I'm an older brother, I've got four younger siblings. There were times growing up where it felt like I was dying a death. I had a younger brother who used to insist on wearing a bowler hat to church. It was a church like Trinity, very, very informal, no one really wore suits or anything. He had a bowler hat. And as a, as a teenager, it was mortifying, <laughs> completely mortifying. And there were times I wanted to push him as far away as I could and not associate with him. Jesus is not like me. Jesus is an older brother that looks at you, as it were, says to the person next to him, that's my sibling, that's my brother, that's my sister. I want to be with them. I'm so delighted they're in my family. Staggering claim, isn't it? He needs to provide evidence for this because it's outrageous. The son of the most high God, the most glorious king can relate to us as brothers and sisters. It's incredible, isn't it? It's staggering. What's his evidence? Well, he returns to the Psalms. Writes the Hebrews, verse 12. I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters. In the assembly I will sing your praises. He's quoting Psalm 22. Um, For those of you who don't know, Psalm 22 is a really... It's a well-known psalm, but we don't necessarily know it as Psalm 22. We look at it when we, every time you read the stories in the Gospels about Jesus dying on the cross, because he quotes the first verse. Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus says this as he's hanging on the cross, pegged out to die. He is quoting this psalm. Jesus... But of course, in quoting this psalm, he's owning the whole psalm. He's adopting the voice of the psalmist. And the psalm goes on to say, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters. In the assembly, I will sing your praise. If you're a Christian, Jesus is your brother, is your older brother. You're his brother or his sister. He is not ashamed of that. He is not embarrassed by that. But of course, we need more evidence, don't we? So he goes to verse 13, Isaiah chapter 8, taking the voice of Isaiah. In the midst of suffering, in the midst of the pain suffered by the people of God, Isaiah says, I will put my trust in him, that is, 
God the Father. Now Jesus says, in the midst of all the pain God's people face, I will put my trust in God the Father. He is identifying with Isaiah, the prophet, who are then identified with the people of God. Jesus is identifying with us. And then the next verse, more explicitly from the same chapter, in fact the following verse of the next chapter, here I am and the children God has given me. He's adopting the language of father and sons here because Isaiah was talking about his sons, his children. But notice the familial turn here. You're in Jesus' family. He's your brother. In all your mess, he doesn't say, I'm embarrassed of you, I'm ashamed of you. It's just incredible. In our pain, he associates with you. Jesus doesn't go for the beautiful people. He goes for the complex, messy people. In other words, us, you and me. It's incredible. It's glorious. It's No words. Verses 14 to 16 then, we see Jesus as rescuer. Have a look. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. This is referencing very, very subtly the story of the Exodus. If you've seen the film The Prince of Egypt or read Exodus, you'll know exactly what the story is. <laughs> God's people are enslaved in the land of Egypt. They're being oppressed by Pharaoh. God then sends a rescuer, Moses, to bring them out of Egypt into a land flowing with milk and honey. But they're trapped, they're enslaved, they're miserable, they're downtrodden. The writer of the Hebrews is saying all of humanity is in that slavery. But Jesus came and died so that that slavery to death and the enemy, the devil, is gone. If you're not a Christian, this is not a flattering phrase for you, I'm afraid. The Bible says you're enslaved. You're trapped. You need to be rescued. You need to ask for Jesus' rescue. If you want to talk about that, come and, come and chat to me afterwards. But if you're a Christian here, you've been set free. The enemy has no grip on you. The doors have been opened. The chains removed. You don't have to wear the orange jumpsuit anymore. You're free. Completely free. When you feel tempted to do that thing, you know you just keep doing. You don't have to. You don't have to. You're not trapped in the patterns of your life. You're not ensnared. If you're a Christian, you are free. Oscar Wilde famously said, I can resist anything apart from temptation. Christian, you don't have to say that. You can resist. You're free. Maybe your pain you're experiencing is caused by decisions you've made in the past, perhaps many years ago. 
Jesus died to set you free. His death has broken the power of him that holds the power of death. We have no need to fear. He helps the children of Abraham, Abraham's descendants. Those who in the first case were in Egypt, but also us in 21st century Oxford. He's our rescuer. Lastly, verse 17. We see Jesus as our priest. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way. In order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service of God. And that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Now priesthood is not really a language we're familiar with anymore. It doesn't have a huge amount to do with vicars and dog collars I'm afraid. A priest is a go-between. In very simple terms, we'll explore it more in the lesson of the Hebrews. But on a, on, a, on a simple level, a priest is a go-between. Someone who makes at-one-ment, atonement for people, who restores relationships. Our culture, our world, our whole humanity is against God. And we need someone to make atonement. We need a priest to restore our relationship. Jesus has restored that relationship. So maybe you came in this morning from the kitchen floor because you just felt guilty. Deeply guilty, deeply ashamed of something in your past. We all have skeletons in our closet that we really wouldn't want to come into the open. Maybe you came here with that. And you don't feel you can come to Jesus. You don't feel you can spend time with him. You don't feel close to him at all. He understands. He's your high priest who can bring you back into the presence of the almighty, loving God. He can restore that relationship. We've seen the different facets of atonement. We've seen Jesus as pioneer. We've seen him as brother. We've seen him as rescuer. We've seen him as priest. And the writer of the Hebrews then concludes... Because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. He gets it. Jesus coming down to earth is not just a cute story from 2,000 years ago. It means very real help. It means God understands what life is like. He has been on the pitch. He's been there. He knows what it's like. And yet without sin, he can restore our relationship to God. And so his invitation to us, to those of us who frequently find ourselves on the kitchen floor for all sorts of reasons, his invitation is, will you look at me when you're hurting? That's all you have to do. Will you look at me when life hurts, I get it. I understand. I know what you're going through. I know the pain you're experiencing. Will you look at me when you're hurting? Perhaps right now you are, you're on the kitchen floor. You're in a crisis. Things are hurting right now. 
brother, sister, in this moment, you are closer to Jesus than you realise. He is, as it were, on the kitchen floor next to you right now. All you need to do is lift your eyes, lift up your head and look at him. He understands. There's also help for us who perhaps have people close to us who are on the kitchen floor right now. I guarantee if you're feeling okay, you probably know someone who isn't. It means we don't have to fully grasp what someone is going through to be able to help them. In my experience so far, I'm not the most experienced of pastors. I'm in training. But in my experience so far, in previous roles, in previous volunteer things, whatever, I have seen that time and time again. I'm in situations where, in all honesty, however hard I listen, however try, I don't know quite what it feels like. And I can be very honest with that person. I don't really understand what you're going through. But I know the one who does. He's here with us in the room. Let me introduce you. Let me reintroduce you. When you're feeling out of your depth, chatting to someone on the kitchen floor, there is someone there. And you can point them in that direction. And that is the best thing you can do at that point. After you've wept with them, after you've grieved with them, after you have listened deeply, try and understand but if you really can't, point them in Jesus' direction. Because he gets it. And there are others of us at the moment who are not yet on the kitchen floor. Things are still quite good. It's September. The year has just begun. Things haven't gone pear-shaped yet. I mean, maybe October, November, January, February. Maybe at some point in the next year. Now is the time to prepare for that moment. Because it will come at a point you don't expect it to. Make a habit of looking at Jesus often. Maybe it might mean setting your alarm a little bit earlier in the morning, maybe 20 minutes earlier in the morning, just to make time with Jesus. Open up the Bible daily in some way. Some people just aren't warning people. But make a time, find a time each day when you can open up your Bible and encounter Jesus afresh. The better you know him now, the better prepared you'll be when you hit the kitchen floor. The other thing I'd encourage you to do is to build up your Bible knowledge. There are bits of the Bible that I don't know very well yet. That when I come across them, I realise, oh my goodness, this would be so helpful the next time I feel like this. All of us have comfort food. Things we enjoy eating when things are really bad. I quite like peanut butter on toast. It's just crunchy peanut butter toast. It's so good. There are Bible passages that for me are like crunchy peanut butter on toast. They're amazing. In moments of crisis, I can just go straight to them. I've memorised them. Here's one, Psalm 42. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Put your hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Maybe, there are, maybe you found a few peanut butter texts. Why don't you try and learn them? So that when you're on the kitchen floor, you don't even need to open your Bible. Or maybe if you are a bit of a reader, 
and you enjoy Christian books, pick out the ones that make you love Jesus more. The ones that you read the first time, you thought, yeah, actually, that was really good. I know some of you read tons of Christian books. Here, I'm going to share a few of mine. I'm not saying these will be helpful for anyone because books are a matter of taste. But here are some books I enjoy reading that point me to Jesus and make me love him more. So, in no particular order. Um, I quite like retro books. So, this is um, The Confessions by St. Augustine of Hippo. The picture's a bit misleading. He was an African bishop who basically wrote about his Christian life in the 5th century. He talks about Jesus in the most beautiful way. I also have a a few more retro books that I quite enjoy reading. Um, This is one by Thomas Watson, uh, The Doctrine of Repentance. It's pure poetry. Some of the old writers in the 17th century used to write beautiful English and talk beautifully about Jesus. I enjoy reading it. It's really good. If perhaps you don't like retro books, I've got some newer ones. Um, Tim Chester, Enjoying God, Experience the Power and Love of God in Everyday Life, Uber Practical, Uber Helpful, Encountering God as Father, Son and Spirit. Excellent. This is one I read, I think when I was a student, and I quite enjoyed it. It's called Newton on the Christian Life. It's a series of essays about John Newton, the guy who wrote Amazing Grace, and The Amazing Grace of God. Um, this author, Tony Ranke, basically took the letters of John Newton and wrote essays about them, how he saw Jesus and how he thought about the Christian life as he pastored people through letters. Really good. This book is basically a hug in a book shape. It's called Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers. Came out just before the pandemic and sold out several times. It's a really, it's just such a nice book that just talks about how much Jesus loves you and how compassionate and gracious he is. If you haven't yet read this, I'd encourage you to have a go. <laughs> Lastly, for the readers, Knowing Christ. This is a book that made absolutely no fanfare and I think may have disappeared since it came out. But it's a book about Jesus. It's theology about Jesus. It's going through the life, death and experience of Jesus. Really, really helpful good knowledge that just warmed my heart about him but some of us just aren't readers some of us just really don't read very much and there are seasons where I just don't read very much God has been gracious to us in that we have Spotify (laughs) at no point in human history has pretty much any Christian song you ever wanted been at the push of a few buttons well not even buttons it's like things on the screen Is there a worship song that just wells in your heart a love for Jesus? Why don't you learn it? Why don't you you have it in one of your favourite playlists? Create like a kind of peanut butter playlist for the kitchen floor. No one will understand what on earth it's on about, but you will. And then you can put all your comforting songs about Jesus in it. Why not? Why not? God has been so gracious to us, particularly in England, in giving us so many resources that we can enjoy. What could you do? What could you do this week to prepare for the kitchen floor moment? How could you support someone on the kitchen floor by showing them something new about Jesus? He is incredible. He is a jewel. He is worth knowing. If you don't yet know him, please come and chat to someone. 
We'd love to introduce you. He is such a comfort. We don't see glory yet. But we see Jesus who understands our pain. So will we look at him? Will we look at him? Let's pray. Father God, help us to look at Jesus afresh right now. Help us to lift our heads, to look at how amazing and how glorious he is, how compassionate he is in our sufferings, in our struggles. Wherever we are, help us to look at him. Holy Spirit, please work in us. Help us to look at Jesus afresh. Help us to see just how incredible he is, how marvellous, how wonderful he is. And may we give him all praise and glory as we wait for our crowns. Amen.